Before we dig into our episode today, I've got a question for you. And you got to be honest. Did you work this past weekend? I'm thinking you did, at least some of the time. I know what nonprofit leaders are like. You deal with critical issues every day. Everything feels urgent. You have too much work and too few people to help you. And you're a pleaser. Taking time off almost makes you feel guilty. I know you want to have a huge impact. I totally get that. But I also know how important it is that you still have a life. A life beyond work? Are you serious, Joan? Yep. I'm completely serious. It's why I'm so excited about my upcoming free online mini-series, which I'm calling High Impact No Burnout, The Nonprofit Leader's Guide to Loving Your Work and Living Your Life. In it, I'm going to show you exactly how to take control of your situation so that you can love your work, have a bigger impact than ever, and even live your life. Each episode is quite short. You can binge watch the entire mini-series, kind of like Netflix, in less than 90 minutes. You're going to be inspired by the story of an executive director who noticed a gap in her community and founded an organization. She nearly burned out, but then she turned it all around and she got her life back. And while that happened, her organization has had a bigger impact than ever. There are enormously important lessons for all of us in her story, and I'm excited to share them with you. There will also be multiple opportunities for live online sessions with me where you can directly ask me all your questions and get my feedback and advice. The approach I teach in this mini-series is life-changing for nonprofit leaders, and it's why I organize the entire Nonprofit Leadership Lab, my online membership community, around these very concepts. You can request access to the mini-series and register at highimpactnoburnout.org. Again, you can register for the mini-series. It's free at highimpactnoburnout.org. The entire miniseries will become available on September 19th, and it will be available only for a limited time through September 26th. So once again, register at highimpactnoburnout.org. I think you'll be really happy you did. And now on to today's episode. The nonprofit sector does not do leadership well. Organizations don't invest in leadership development enough. And when you use the phrase leadership pipeline to a board or staff leader, you'll see their eyebrows furrow, maybe their heads kind of droop. And then try engaging in that same conversation through a diversity lens. Ask how our sector nurtures and develops leaders of color. Then keep going. What do our organizations do, if anything, to support leaders of color to set these leaders up to succeed? Oh, then let's add one more lens, gender. How does the nonprofit sector invest in leadership development for women of color? We don't. And trust me, I am no expert. I am not getting this right in my own work with staff and board leaders of small nonprofits. I have a lot to learn. The Building Movement Project released the most comprehensive study on leadership diversity in the nonprofit sector. It's called Race to Lead. Here's an alarming headline. People of color in the executive director CEO role has remained under 20% for the last 15 years, even as our country has become more wildly diverse. Another survey tells another important story. 30% of leaders of color said they left a job due to an unwelcoming racial environment. Oh, here's another. We mask the problem. White respondents underestimated how many folks were leaving their jobs because of discrimination by 15%. The Race to Lead study 
is clear about what the issues are and what they're not. It's not about differences in qualifications or background or a lack of aspiration or skills in preparation. It is about an uneven playing field, the frustration of representing, and at the end of the day, it's a structural problem about culture and norms. My guest today is a nonprofit CEO, a woman, and a woman of color. Her organization educates and empowers the sports community to eliminate racial discrimination, champion social justice, and improve race relations. Our guest has much to teach us, and we have a lot to learn. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. Diane Billings Burford has spent her career working in and lifting up diverse communities. And today, she's coming up on her one year anniversary as the CEO of RISE, the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality, founded by Steve Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins. Prior to RISE, Diane served as executive director culture investments, and vice president of the Time Warner Foundation. She led the company-wide college internship internship program, employee community engagement, and community investment programs in New York City. She also managed the grant-making and operations of the foundation. Prior to that, as the the city's chief service officer, Billings Burford headed New York City Service, a division of the mayor's office engaging more than 1.3 million New Yorkers connecting them to service opportunities, more easily targeting the city's greatest needs and promoting service. Billings Burford's career has included a senior position with New York City-based nonprofits, including one focused on leadership development in charter school management. And it all started with a stint as an associate of a major law firm, Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. Billings Burford earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Yale and a law degree from Columbia. She's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. Welcome, Diane, and thank you for your service and for agreeing to share some of your insights with our listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. And you even got through that bio. I usually get a little uncomfortable while people are doing it, but thank you. (laughs) Well, um, I don't know why you'd be uncomfortable for a single moment. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, so, So speaking of this professional trajectory, Diane, Let's talk about it for a second, and and maybe we should stay with this um, with this sports metaphor. Um, you've been on a lot of playing fields in your career, and you've gone from to this white shoe law firm like Simpson Thatcher to education to nonprofit to city government to corporate America and back to nonprofit. So one of my takeaways, as I read your bio was that you kind of embody this notion of intersectionality, and I, I kind of was curious: were you always this person? Um, So I think the answer is fundamentally yes, but um, but also definitely experiences in my life have helped to continue to form this person and help me to evolve. And so I do think that I've had a a certain number of gifts and talents and skills, um, but different experiences in my life has have helped me to kind of figure out which ones to develop and more what to do with them. Um, I think I've share uh, with with many that I'm a girl from Brooklyn. I love that part. I wish that was the headline of my bio. Yeah. Um, and I'm a girl from Brooklyn before the Brooklyn that I think everyone knows now. You know, uh, Brooklyn and, and New York in general in the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s was not this Brooklyn and this New York that we know now. Um, 
And so I, I grew up, I, I wouldn't say that I was poor, but I definitely, once I began to go through, go to independent school, I realized my family did not, we, we probably were poor, right? Like, or, or mm-hmm. the low middle class. Right. Um, and so when you have something else to compare it to, you're able to see that. But uh, I definitely think coming out of that environment with a great family um, and some pretty significant interventions um, helped to shape my career. So I was at a pretty early age identified by a program prep for prep. And that's what Uh. put me into independent schools and understanding that, oh, there are different classes and more more for me was there are different educational experiences. Um, I had two sisters. Unfortunately, one has passed away. And each of them were, are, were and are incredibly bright. Both were skipped. Both were promoted. Um, and both ran into social problems by the time they got to high school and ended up my middle sister being put back in her correct grade and my eldest sister who has passed never finished high school. Mm. Um, And so definitely one of the things my mother who was amazing realized was that there had to be a different educational experience for me to be successful. Interesting. Um, So prep for prep was the intervention that did that for me. Yeah. Um, And I think it has made me a person that believes in intervention. I believe in an organization's ability to come in and really have an impact and really make a difference. And that has, when you talk about that intersectionality, that definitely has continued my calling in the not-for-profit space. Um, You know, my time in the mayor's office helped me to understand most of what we think about as public domain, the private has a hand in. And that Uh really led me back to the for-profit. Oh, interesting. um, You know, sector. So, you know, I, I do think I was built like this, but I also think my experiences have, have led me to this this um, career of intersectionality. I um, I find that every time I interview somebody, they talk about it this very way, that, that it's almost like their careers are almost like this roller board that follows them. And, and at every turn, there's something you put from one position into that roller board and then you keep you kind of keep adding to it and it and it all somehow or another at the you know it just starts to really make sense right and so that's that's how I feel when I sort of read your story so um and it sounds like your mother was a complete rock star she was she was amazing I've named my daughter after her ah love that um so why don't you tell us a little bit about Rise you left a role at Time Warner, mm-hmm. you know, where you were able to make a real impact on so many nonprofits in New York, um, and then you headed out to run just one. So yeah. Rise might have must have been quite a draw. So tell us a little bit about the organization and what fires you up about it. Yeah. So Rise is a young organization. I think one of the things to keep in mind is it's only been around since 2015, and it really started with this um, passion on the part of someone who quite honestly has tons of resources, Steve Ross, and, and a number of people around him. Um, and I think what, I, I think those of us that are in this space, we've seen tons of passions turn into not that much. Correct. So, um, so um, I think of prizes, it really goes to the credence of what we are and that it has lasted four years. And I think we're just on an upward trajectory. 
I don't even think it's sincerely begun. I think it's really about to take off. Um, and so basically, this is an organization that one, to what I hope is part of our larger conversation today, just head on deals with racism. That just says, this is a problem. This might be the seminal problem and we have to address it. Um, and, and RISE chooses, our strategy is to address it through sport mm-hmm. because we think that's going to have a really deep impact on individuals. We're going to be able to change thoughts, attitudes, behaviors, and therefore it's going to have a deep impact on our nation. Um, and so that's the macro view of what RISE is. And I also was attracted to RISE because there are so many integral players with resources, and I don't mean athletes. I mean, for instance, my board members with resources and reach that are invested in this vision, are invested Mm -hmm. in this mission. And so, you know, that's what drew me to rise. I knew a time of change was coming. It was really fortuitous. AT&T was buying Time Warner when that acquisition came through. I really had already been thinking what's next. Um, And and this, this came to me a couple of different times before I really uh, embraced that I was going to go after seeking the position and then landed it. Fantastic. Um, Can you offer me something? So you've been just coming up on a year in this job and I always like to ask sort of something that you're particularly proud of that rise has done during your first year that says, this is, this is the kind of work I want to do more of. I would say um, two things. I think in the first year, I just heard from a few board members, as you can imagine with all that's going on, um, we have, our board engagement is at a level that um, I am incredibly proud of. Awesome. Uh, we are, in, the engagement, if you think about the people who are on my board and how senior they are, was there. So when we face this recent challenge, the connections were already there. Conversation could already happen. And, you know, we're really moving through this process as a, a singular team. And so I would say year one, the board engagement and around honing our vision, honing our mission and getting at the work right. uh, feels really like success for me. And then, you know, I would say the thing that moves me the most is the work. Um, recently got to look at a video that one of our sponsors, Under Armour, put together. And just to hear a young man of Middle Eastern descent in Chicago and a young woman of Puerto Rican descent in Chicago who took part in our program uh, that we do there and the difference it's made in their lives and the difference it's made in their lives as they, for themselves as individuals, but also the community they've built that crosses racial lines. You know, so often in America, we think black and we think white, and that's incredibly important. Um, and on top of that, we've, we've got a number of races and we've got races, not racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, we've got to build community across racial lines. So seeing the impact and that we really are building those communities, that that has probably been the most important thing that I've been able to um, embrace and take part of this year. Um, it, it's a remarkable organization, and I encourage folks to go to rise to win 
org and learn more about the organization and the kind of specific programs uh, that you all lead. Um, so in preparation for this conversation, Diane, you provided me with a few key resources and listeners are going to find the links below the podcast on my website at joangary.com. These resources speak quite specifically to the challenges faced by people of color, most specifically women in the nonprofit sector. And I really encourage you not just to listen to this podcast, but to, to grab these links, read them, and share them with your board and with your staff to have a conversation. And in fact, you know, if we do this right, this is a podcast I would hope that you would actually share as a pre-listen for a board meeting or an all-staff retreat. Um, I love to think about my podcasts and my blog posts in that way, that, that, that they actually not only educate and enlighten, but also um, generate conversation. So, yeah. So, Diane, so let's, let's start with this, the, the, probably the basic question. Offer listeners a clear sense of the challenges, which are it's clear that people of color face challenges in the nonprofit sector. Um, what does that what does that look like for people of color as nonprofit yeah. leaders? Yeah, as I thought about this question, I tried to boil it down so I don't uh, ramble. But um, one of the things that is incredibly clear that is a challenge for leaders of color in this space is that we have to function without certain privileges. Um, and I think if people look at it that way, um, it, it could be helpful. So oh, interesting. One, one privilege is that I, I function without, or, or that one way I have to function is I am constantly needing to reconcile representing myself, an individual, and representing a group. Right. Right? And so the way that looks, when we talk about what that looks like, um, you know, it's interesting. Earlier, you were reading my bio, and I said I feel uncomfortable, and and you said I don't know why. Yeah, some of that is, um, I, I think, from having to manage that. One, women, I think, are socialized generally to uh, be more humble, um, and so I gotta, you know, I have to sometimes set aside some of that upbringing when I hear people leading with my bio and acknowledging it and owning it. Um, and, and I'm always reconciling that. Am I going to be seen as a woman who is bragging? Right. As opposed to a leader who is proud of their accomplishments. Right. I don't know that men generally have to think about or reconcile those two things when they're just going about their course of business. Yes. Um, I, and in particular, I, I don't think that white men have to think about that um, as they're going about their course of business. And so I, I think to your point, one of the things that leaders of color face is that we do, we are constantly figuring out this representation of individual versus this representation of group. And it, it's just, you know, it's fine. Those of us that do it, we know how to do it. We almost do it without thinking about doing it. Right. Um, but it is extra mental and psychic energy. Right. And then the other thing is we are leading with we are leading in a society that has implicit bias going on at all times. So yes. I I must I must answer questions that I feel confident 
that if sometimes if I were not African-American or if I were not a woman, especially in, in this particular space, I'm in a pretty male dominated space in the you sports are. industry. Yeah. Um, that others wouldn't have to deal with. And again, it's not the end of the world, but it's there. So for instance, and, and this one, I think uh, we use all the time, but I am, I've had people say to me, my goodness, you speak so well. Right. Right. Well, considering, and then I think, considering what? Like if you were considering my education, I just speak this well. Right. Right. Like what were you considering that you were shocked about the way I speak? So the, um, so it, it's, you know, we're functioning just in societies that have those biases. Or if I go into conversations about sports, I love sports. My kids, I think, are super athletes. My husband played football at Yale. I played sports until I got to college. It, you know, I, I deal with the questions of, oh, my goodness, like, how do you know? And why do you know so much about sports? Because uh, it's what I do. It's what I watch. <laughs> it's what I read. Like, how do you know yeah. as much as you know about sports? So I think it's, you know, leaders of color, are, we're always operating just in societies that, that function with implicit bias. Yeah, I, you know? that, that, sounds, that sounds like that makes a ton of sense. And you talked a little bit about adding gender to the mix and the, the sort of that experience. And I, I, I wanted to um, just highlight something that, uh, that, that you sent to me. It was a first-person piece and the author was uh, uh, an, a black woman with a Latinx accent. Mm-hmm. And she said this, um, I grabbed the quote here, naively I thought that my contributions to the social justice sector would be enthusiastically welcomed. But I eventually realized that for my ideas and contributions to be serious, taken seriously, they had to be delivered through my white male colleagues. And, uh, um, and I, I'm suspecting that rings true for you, but the, 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 one of the pieces that really struck me about this is what I think about often because I deal with nonprofits, you know, across the country, and uh, uh, is this, we're talking about a social justice sector here. Like, shouldn't we be better than this? So I'm going to say something that might seem harsh. So I think that have I does this ring true for me? Uh, yes. And less so now. I would say that um, in full disclosure, maybe when I was in the charter school movement, uh, it's almost 10 years ago now, it rang incredibly true. Uh-huh. I, think, I think 10 years of me being seasoned has helped me to figure out, when we go back to talking about honing skills, how to assure that I am heard and assure that my, my ideas are my ideas and feel comfortable in stating that. Um, but that was not always the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and then to the, I think the harsher answer is, shouldn't we be better? I'm not sure why we think we should be better because I actually don't think in this sector, we do some of the work. Right. And so sometimes I, I, this is, I have great conversations about white liberalism and the challenges of white liberalism. I, I, I think there are work. There is work that has to be done to explicitly address racism, and to explicitly address that it is a structural system that impacts all of us. Yes, and there are hard, ugly truths to face before people can really deal with it. And, and I think those are they are hard and they are ugly, and individuals don't like to deal with it. So I'm not sure why we think we would be in a better situation. 
Um, that, uh, I'm, I'm hearing you loud and clear. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I, I appreciate the pushback, actually. Um, so tell me about um, the trajectory, because there seem to be some common threads, the trajectory for many of women of color who secure nonprofit leadership positions. And yeah. uh, again, a really excellent resource uh, that you'll see below this um, this podcast on my website, but this sort of path from honeymoon to an early exit, right? Yeah. So, can we talk? Will you talk, folks, through that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that every smart leader, right? We going back to what you said about this being my first year, says there needs to come a time for the. You need to start with listening, and you need to start with assessment. The challenge, I think, for many leaders of color is that when we come out of that period of assessment and then are saying to our organizations, here's the analysis, here are our strengths, here are our weaknesses, here are our opportunities for improvement, Um, many of us run into, at that point, either people flat out not being willing to accept our assessments Mm-hmm. or undervaluing our assessments or not being able to do the hard work of taking feedback and saying, hey, this assessment was about me. Yeah. It is correct and I need to adjust. Um, and so I think that honeymoon ends often because if we are to be good leaders, it means that we have to assess our organizations and we have to make moves to make our, make our organizations better. And as everyone knows, change is not always received well. Right. Like, right. It's just the nature of change and how people receive it. Um, and so generally we run into those moments. And that is where I see the real challenges coming through for leaders of color. And again, back to this, this one of the greatest challenges in front of us is that we are constantly reconciling that. So we're saying, what do I really write? What do I really say? Like, yeah. here's the challenge. But mm-hmm. how can I say it? so that this person can actually receive it and we can move forward. And what can't I say? Because I think that will lead to my exit, but it is true. Um, And, and, you know, I, I I think that's where the honeymoon ends. So there's a, Um, there's a, and it depends on how individuals navigate it differently. Right. Um, Some successfully and some less so. But you're talking about a filter, right? It's, it's, you move from being uh, uh, speaking, you know, a compassionate truth teller, right? Compassionate truth teller to somebody then then has to make some kind of choices that don't that don't feel that clearly don't feel very good. Yeah, I will. You know, case in point. You know, as you were referencing, we're in the news now. Um, one of my board co-chairs, Stephen Ross, held a fundraiser for the president, um, and there's been significant backlash uh, because of this decision. Um, And when it came time for a statement from the organization, which is really a statement from me, the CEO. Yes. Right. It was one of those moments where we grappled with. And I say we because I definitely engage um, board members and staff members in this process. But we had to say, are we going to lead with what what are we going to do? What is the statement going to be? And, you know, I love the word that you just used. The guiding rule for us when we came out was it was we need to start with truth and we need yeah. to lead with truth. Absolutely. And so for us, the truth is 
Steve Ross has made incredible investments in this fight against racism. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, this decision to host this fundraiser is problematic for the organization. Right. Both and, are true. And I, right, it's an and, it's not a but. It's not an and. Right, it's it's definitely an and. And and both are true. And we felt like we led with truth. And and the truth is we've got to figure our way forward and we haven't figured it out exactly right. But we have also decided we are going to keep going because to stop would be horrible at this point. Um, so that being said, I think those are all challenges that all leaders would be going through at this moment. But I do think that my statements um, definitely because we're dealing with a lot of athletes who are also of color. Right. I, I definitely felt a, a weight of not only am I representing Diane, the individual CEO who's leading Rise, but I'm representing Diane, the African-American. And how does she receive this standing president? How does she feel and how does she represent that or that group of people? Yeah, that's a lot to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what, um, let's think back to the, the, the sort of the trajectory that tends mm -hmm. to, yeah. uh, that, that tends to, to lead towards yeah. early exit. So what, yeah. what, what happens that, that tips women of color out yeah. the door? So I think that period of assessment comes, you give the, you give the analysis and almost always the analysis means something needs to change. Yep. And so I think the real challenge comes when, how is the change dealt with? Who has to change and how? Um, and unfortunately, sometimes when that who has to change and how is about the people in power. Right. They do not. They do not receive the feedback well. And, and the leader is put in a position of backing down from what they think is their truth or doubling down on what they think is their truth. And then the, the organization responds, right? And so you have this, this back and forth um, that sometimes ends well and sometimes, quite honestly, does not. It can lead to the exit of the leader, and many times it does. And so when you're talking about an assessment, you're not talking about we need another development major gifts officer. Or we're not talking about, uh, you know, we should embark. On, maybe you are talking about strategy. When you talk about an assessment and what that truth is, what can that look like that feels, that feels hard for the people yes. in power? What, yep. is that, what is that? So it, could, so it could be, let me say this, it could be we need to build a development team. Yes, we are not raising funds to our potential. Um, we need a person focused on development in a certain area. Mm -hmm. That is not always received well by a board for many reasons. It could be they don't want to increase the budget. Correct. Right? It could be that they're making a statement, I, we think the CEO should be able to do this, and, and we're questioning whether you're able to do what we hired you to do. And it, it could be, it could look like that. It could also look like um, we don't have the structure in place to do what we said we're going to do, that mm -hmm. there is a break between what the organization intends and the actual impact that the organization is having. That requires board members often and senior staff to accept that they are not having the impact that they intend to have or that they are not having optimal impact. 
and that is not always received well. Right. Um, so it can look it, it it can look a lot of ways, but primarily what it looks like is you have a person in the leadership position coming to a conclusion and making a recommendation, and that recommendation and that person yes. are being questioned. And, and, and that person not only is a recommendation being questioned, but the person's thought process, ability to strategize, and qualifications for reaching that conclusion are being questioned. Um, let me ask you a question, Diane, in the context of this is, um, and I, you know, I don't know if it was in the study or not, but um, you also have to be talking about, I think, anyway, um, women of color that are hired as CEOs in organizations that are not actually very diverse, that they're hired by largely white boards. And and there has to be the challenge of that and the challenge of speaking truth about why diversity on your board matters, why, you know, whatever it might, you know, that you you have to look like the community you serve or whatever it might be, right? So that's just a... That's just hard work. And the work is hard to begin with without that. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, you raise a great point. I should have prefaced it. I'm thinking of, you know, if you look uh, during my time at Time Warner, we would ask our grantees to send us in their demographic kind of breakdown of their boards and senior staff. Yep. And so I am primarily thinking of, I'm not even sure what percentage we could put on it, but I, I would feel confident, at least when I was at Time Warner, it's in the high 70s. Uh-huh. that if you're talking about organizations over a three to five million dollar budget, you are also talking about organizations where the leadership is predominantly white. Yes. Right. Like there's almost a complete overlap. And I say that in the human services yep. industry, the arts education. I'm not even sure you can find one where that's not the case. So you're absolutely right. Like that's, that's, I'm treating that as a given that that's part of the dynamic. Yep. If you are a leader of color of a not-for-profit over a certain budget, you, you are in the minority. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, as, as these studies tell us, as I mentioned in the, in the open, this is not about one particular individual. This is a structural, this is structural, it's systemic. It is um, about culture and norms. It's not about, it's clearly not about box checking. And that's the kind of change that's hard. Right. Um, and it makes, it makes me think, um, I'm working with an independent school right now. It's a Quaker school. And we're trying to sort of decentralize, look at leadership what does it look like and where do you find it? Mm-hmm. What thwarts it? And uh, we, we talk, we've been talking a lot about attributes of leadership. And um, if, if I have my way, um, I, I've been advocating for it and the head of school has been advocating for it, is how do you invest in, um, in, in taking the family of a school and teaching them how to have difficult conversations well? Yeah. Well, so two two responses to that. One, I'm incredibly happy to hear that you're doing that. When we talk about what I think are the answers to the challenges, because I do think there are answers to the challenges. I don't think this is an insurmountable situation. 
Um, I think processes like you just laid out are mm -hmm. answers to the challenge. I think it, it requires that people are ready to be introspective and really think outside of the box and actually make decisions that feel like they are against individual self-interest. I think the biggest challenge we face is that many of the changes that are required will feel painful to those in power. Right, and, and you're dealing with, uh, quite often you're dealing with, uh, you're talking about boards, and you're talking yeah. about folks who already have another day job. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's already hard. The it's already service hard. hard, right? And then and then we're asking them yeah. to actually to do harder work. Yeah. Um, but it's you know, it's it's the work, it's a, it's right. a, it's essential. It's essential. It's essential. And so going back to what you said, I, I love this thought of looking at the attributes of leadership. I used to teach quite a while leadership development and we focused on attributes right. of leadership. And so even in your process, what you're asking people to do is to look at a system that by and large has worked for them and say, what's wrong with this? Yeah. What attributes have we not looked for? Because if we looked at attributes differently, then wouldn't we have a more diverse leadership set? It's interesting. Right? Yeah, it's so interesting, Diane. I'm thinking about um, the notion that it's sort of similar to me, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but when we, when I was at, at GLAD and we were fighting for LGBT equality, one of the things that did not resonate for people was marriage licenses, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Because, and I would say there are 1,300 rights and privileges that come with a marriage license that, you know, LGBT people don't have. And the truth of the matter is that people, the system worked just fine. For, for street folks and yep. they had no they had no conception that that was even there there were things they had that other people didn't have well that's privilege right yes that's the privilege right, right it was uh, I always remember I think it was uh, Professor Frankie when I was at uh, Columbia Law that helped me to really see this privilege Catherine Frankie is that Catherine right Frankie, yeah uh -huh. so really helped me her work helped me to understand and it's crazy, right, that I had to understand it because as an African-American, I understand, right, there was a time where African-Americans in this country could not marry. Yep. Uh, there was a time in this country where we couldn't marry someone outside of our race either. Yep. Um, so, but, but listening to her break it down legally, you're right, right? Again, it requires the, the main group to be introspective enough and to also say, I may have to make decisions that at least on some level feel painful. Sometimes it feels like we are losing something. I don't think we are, but it feels right. like that. Um, and, and that is the hardest part, I think, of any type of, of getting to any type of inclusion. You, getting the, the mainstream group, the group that is privileged, to feel comfort and reassessing the situation and letting go of that privilege, giving that privilege to, to every group. So the, um, you talked about change being hard, regardless of what kind of change it is. And I believe that one of the real keys to getting a group of people to really wrap their arms around and truly embrace a change, let's say in an organization is, um, is to present a picture 
of what the organization is and can do as a result of that change so that people say, I want that, right? I want that. And I'm willing to do the hard work to get there. And I wonder, I find myself wondering here, Diane, do we do a good enough job of painting that picture for folks in power around um, issues of race? I think you bring up a a great um, point, and I don't know if you meant it this way, but one of the things I've personally gone through as a leader, my inclination is to be analytical and to be strategic. Right. But I think the great leader in these times is the one that keeps putting that vision in front of people. Um, So I have pushed myself to spend 20 to 30% of the time focused on explaining challenges Uh and the rest of the time focused on creating a vision and creating a plan to get to that vision. Yes. I mean, it's key. Um, It's key. And I, I think we have to, one of the things we underestimate is that another, an, an, an opposing vision has been created that the change is a problem. Correct. We, we have to spend the energy on creating the vision where the change is an actual solution and it is a wonderful place to be yes. and we are better for it. Right. Right. Because you're actually telling you're telling people that what they have built is somehow faulty. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So. Yep. So we are talking with Diane Billings Burford. She's the CEO of Rise, an organization that educates and empowers the sports community to eliminate racial discrimination, champion social justice, and improve race relations. You can and absolutely should learn more about them at risetowin.org. And we've been talking about diversity in leadership in the nonprofit sector, um, experience of women in color, for women of color, and... Um, and so, Diana, I want to just get back to you. So we, we've, you know, I think we've established in this conversation we're having, we're not, we're not talking about a root cause. We're not talking an easy fix. We're talking a systemic problem. It's about policies and cultures and norms. It's about sort of grappling, as you say, sort of people being introspective. I think vulnerability is a big piece of that, too. Are you willing Absolutely. to be vulnerable about this? Um, yes. And so... One could look at that and say, well, okay, that's not a very easy to-do list, right? No. And, and for those of us who are committed to learning and affecting change, you can, like, you can have a certain kind of paralysis. Like, what, is it, what, is it, what do we do? Um, and, 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 you know, I have seen this in varying institutions. For those of us who are white, a certain fear about making a mistake. Yeah. Um, and so help us understand what, you know, what do you think – you know, you've been talking about it a little bit more, but maybe in a little bit more more detail, what needs to happen to move the needle in the sector? Yep. So first, I think what needs to happen to move this needle in the sector, and I think the sector is getting to this step one, which is acknowledge that there is a problem. Right. Uh, We've had a long time of explaining away why the problem is not the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So we've gone through the Oh, it's a pipeline problem. Oh, it's a cultural fit problem. It's a personality problem. I think we are just now getting to the point where we're like, okay, this is an it inclusion is, problem. Yeah, and we problem. must deal with it as an inclusion problem, right? Right. So first thing is framing the problem correctly. And, and now I think to your question, okay, now if I acknowledge the problem, 
and it does feel larger than life, what do I do? So I think we treat it like we treat any other skill set. Because I will say, as much as I've seen people who are resistant to change in this sector, I've also seen some of the most brilliant people I know, mm-hmm. right? So let's, let's deal with it like we would address any other skill set in any other body of knowledge we don't know and we don't understand. Right. I think there are some great writers out there. I personally, even though I, I see some issues uh, with right, white fragility, I think starting at Robin D'Angelo's work is Dr. D'Angelo, excuse me, I should use her title, um, is a great place to start. I think she's got some nice 20, she got like a 20 minute video on unpacking white privilege that I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely think everybody in leadership, not-for-profit leadership, should look at, and I don't just mean everybody white, I mean everybody. Um, I think, uh, I will say, I just read a, a good piece by a journalist, Max Boot, who I I, um, I find interesting. He, he also is funny. He just referred to the president as President Archie Bunker, um, which is, he's, he's funny, but I also think he's insightful and he really thinks. So I don't even think if you're not interested in reading or watching um, academic texts, there is media out there. And I think his last piece was about uh, white people get over yourselves uh-huh. um, or ourselves because he's white. So um, I think the first, the step one is begin to read about it, begin to read things that challenge the notions. And even sometimes it just has to be personally reading because it is difficult and you don't want to have the conversation yet. Yep. And then I would say, get some, there are tons of consultants out there. Use some resources. Rise, we do this work. We lead people through difficult conversations. I'm really excited that, you know, I just spent a couple of days with USA Hockey in Colorado Springs. Uh-huh. I mean, that's that's pretty white. That's pretty white. You are at this point of, okay, the challenge is inclusion. Okay, how do we get at it? So find some organizations that can help you have these difficult conversations, help you be introspective, help you unpack it, and then figure out how to apply it. Um, I think the way to get at it is like anything else. And then the, the last thing I will say is the challenge is complex. And, and the biggest mistake I have seen organizations and individuals make is to seek to find a simple answer to a complex problem. Totally. If you come up with a simple answer, that is probably not the answer, right? Yes. This is this this is a problem hundreds of years in the making. This is a problem that is intersectioned with class at this point and intersectioned with gender at this point. This is a complex challenge, um, but I don't think anybody prepares to run a marathon by preparing to run a hundred. Completely. I was actually going to go the marathon sprint, keep it right in the sports category, right? right? Yeah. I mean, and it has to be understood in the organization that way too, because, because again, you have um, uh, boards who volunteer and, and they want to check boxes that they, you know, they don't, there's not a time as a, as a fairly um, precious commodity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think and that's right. We don't want to pick up more complexity. I get it. But, you know, we, we, we have to deal with the problem and it is complex. So we're almost out of time, but I, I wanted to just ask you um, this one last question. It's sort of, how's it working in your own organization? 
And, 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 and I guess I would say maybe as a, just a final thought, sort of, I, I love the idea of just saying, I'm going to absorb, I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to, yeah. right. We are going, we're not going to necessarily, I want everybody to read this piece, you know, and, um, uh, is your work with rise informing your understanding of this systemic problem? Absolutely. So I think, you know, I re- just referenced being out in Colorado Springs. Yep. Um, I also reference, we do this work every place from Colorado Springs to inner city Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I am growing exponentially in this space by hearing different types of people engage in the same journey. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't think one of the biggest challenges I think we are faced with is because in so many ways our communities are segregated. Mm-hmm. We need to be having these conversations together. That makes it harder. But by having them separately, I think we're lacking some of what's required to, to get to a real solution. Um, so I think having been able to be in those really, truly diverse populations, having these difficult conversations, I have grown as an individual. And I, I will certainly say, listening to my board manage this latest challenge and us come together and be able to say some things honestly and be able to talk to one another about intent versus impact. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say, and what does that mean? What would inclusion look like? What does doing the right thing look like in an inclusive space? Um, uh, I, I think our board is really walking the walk and talking the talk out of necessity at this moment. Um, and I'm feeling really good about how they're doing it. And um, same thing for my staff. You know, I I think, listen, we've been through challenges before. This is a challenge. But that ability to take someone else's perspective and really unpack what we're dealing with. We're we're doing it and we're walking the walk. And it's hard, but I feel good about it. Um, There is just nothing like putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Nothing at all. Uh -uh. Um, So it's interesting. We are out of time. And I... um, as you talked about resources and educating yourself, I really hope that as a result of have of listening to Diane today, that this has been part of your part of your a few steps on your journey on your marathon, and yeah. um, that was that was our hope. And um, I am very grateful to you, Diane, to um, to joining us to help people along this journey. And if I could just add one more piece, Joan, I would say this. RISE mostly works with young people between high school and college. That's the vast majority of the population we hit. Okay. And I'd like to end with a bit of that vision that we talked about, right? I I would love that. You know, our vision is that we're working towards a broader society where we're not dealing with the same problem because a lot of what we're dealing with is that these concepts, this con- the concepts of identity and diversity and inclusion and equity, they are not something that we have made part of our education as people are developing. Right. So our, our belief, not even our hope, but our belief and a lot of what we do is we are pushing in and we are pushing in these concepts and we are coming in and we are teaching earlier, right? Yep. So that when this population are our 40, 50, and 60-year-olds, they just have a completely different skill set, a completely different understanding. And so 
the thing that I'm most excited about is that even as we're dealing with the challenges of right now, we are, I believe, we are preventing the same challenge from being the status quo in the future. It, and and it's a great way to end too, because if we if we bookend your bio with what you just said, sort of the, there's a there is a thread that runs through this, which is opportunity and education, yeah. right? And um, and I it, 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 it's kind of part of your DNA, and Thank um, you. Thank and you so uh, I I love I think that's a perfect way to close us out. Um, just thinking about how do you plant the seeds with yep. the next generation. And um, it's really wonderful to hear about RISE's programs and um, uh, sort of, you know, you're at, you're in Colorado Springs and you're also talking to kids in schools and that's, um, you got to, you got to get it. Complex problem. You got to have complex solutions. It, it's a journey. So there you go. So Diane Billings Burford, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I am quite sure that if you were not in a car, you were taking a lot of notes. And we're going to link to a couple of the resources that Diane mentioned in the, in the podcast, as well as some of the materials that she provided to me to help me on my own marathon. So um, thank you for that. And um, just as I close, um, please know that there are a host, speaking of resources, a host of resources for board and staff leaders of nonprofits at joangary.com. In addition to this podcast, a weekly blog, uh, and um, you'd find uh, access to uh, my uh, my book that is both for board and staff leaders. And you can also learn a little bit more about our online membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. That you can also find at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. So thanks for joining me and I look forward to more conversation next time. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.